Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hi, this is Mike Fernandez, and I'm here with my colleague, uh, Gary Sheffer. Uh, we have a special broadcast today, and that we're actually going to talk to our kids. Yeah, it's great. It's really, I'm so excited about doing that. And by the way, this is our 25th show. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting, uh, my wife, Pat Fernandez, is the one who suggested yes. that at some time, uh, because Sarah, your daughter, mm-hmm. your your oldest child, uh, actually worked with me at Burson Marsteller. That's right. And then, uh, and then Will, who is our youngest, uh, is also in the communications profession. So, so it should be a great show. Yes. So let's get to the news. Um, big in the news has been the impeachment hearings. Um, with the impeachment proceedings started uh, in Congress, an election for president in 2020, uh, having an informed body politic mm-hmm. is essential. Yes. Uh, yet many Americans say they feel disoriented uh, by the rise of social media, the proliferation of online material, flood of news. Uh, they don't know where to actually trust information. Right. And so there's a new uh, poll that's out from the Associated Press and the Nork Center for Public Affairs. Um, and, and they found that 47% of Americans believe it's difficult to know whether That's the information half, yeah. they encounter is true. Only 31% said that it was easy, and 60% of Americans say they regularly see conflicting reports about the same set of facts. Uh, Gary, I guess that means despite the plethora of mm. information, you know, Americans are feeling less informed. Uh, do you buy that? And if so, what can be done about it? Well, I... I it's depressing. You know, the information and the technology that we have available to us was supposed to make us more informed, mm-hmm. not less. I, I, I do buy it to this extent. I do think in the United States, at least, uh, the political parties and, and let's you know say it, the president has been very effective in in casting doubt on what's real and what's not. Yeah. Right. So so there's that bubble mentality um you know, one side is seeing the impeachment hearings through one cable network and then the other side seeing it through another. Um, so I think there there is something to that. And I wonder this. I wonder if the, the lack of civility and, and the constant political bickering, people feel less informed because they're just tired of it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I get that way sometimes. And I love mm-hmm. the news and I, I love public policy and that kind of thing. And there's sometimes when something important is going on, and I just don't want any more of it, right? Yeah. Because it's so is so acidic in many yeah. ways. So what can we do about it? Watch more sports. What? It, well, <laughs> there you go. And you know, we got how many more months till spring training for the Yankees? But, <laughs> but, well, um, uh, and and maybe there's something to that. And 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 in consuming your information in more bite sizes. Yeah. And really looking for sources that you know to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And I think the media has an obligation, and I think the tech companies that are platforms have an obligation to help the the country in in the United States um, understand what's real and what's not real. But I think we're a long way from that. Um, 
uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, and I also think in this space that anybody who's in the news and information business, they've got to think about how do we make things more simple. Yeah. Um, so simplicity is key. And then the other is how do we do this in a way that resonates? So yeah. that connection, that engagement uh, with audiences is, is, is all the more important. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about, Mike, uh, the impeachment hearings. Yeah. We're in the middle. I mean, really, I, it, it's hard to even imagine how historic these are. And, um, and, and maybe that relates to our first topic, which is uh, people are watching, but mm-hmm. not in record numbers. I yeah. think 13 million and the, the, the Mueller testimony uh, was higher rated. But if you are watching, mm-hmm. I, I think the first week uh, on the performance of the people testifying has been extraordinary. And, and, and not from a, you know, again, a political sense, but just from what we thought maybe was missing yeah. in public communications and public is the strength of character. Oh. Of these, uh, now you had William Taylor, who's a mm-hmm. former ambassador and, mm-hmm. and served for a while. George Kent, I believe he was the bow tie person, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is an easy yeah. way to identify him, but yeah. also a longtime foreign affairs officer. And then um, the one that really I think galvanized and got a standing ovation. Who who gets a standing ovation at a for at a testifying con- before Congress? <laughs> right, Marie Yovanovitch, uh, who was the former ambassador to Ukraine. So, what does this tell us in that first week? Not so much about guilt or innocence, but about the art of public courage. Yeah, I think it's not only about courage, it's also uh, comportment. You know, how somebody carries themselves in these hearings is all important. Um, But each of these individuals, they know who they are. Um, They know the, the, the role that they have played. Um, it, it was it was quite edifying to even watch Yovanovitch uh, uh, as she got questioned even about the Biden mm-hmm. th- uh, information, which is where the Republicans wanted to take yes. the hearing and and the discussion. She was very forthright and she said, you know, I actually uh, raised cautions about that yeah. and and shared that information, um, you know, with. Uh, the previous administration, um, uh, that this is something that uh, we've got to watch out for. Um, So the character of each of these individuals is stellar. I mean, you go to William Taylor, somebody who graduated towards the top of his class at West Point. uh, You know, uh, these are people that are smart. Uh, They care not about a political party or partisanship, they care about our country. Right. And that's coming through, and that's uh, increasing uh, the credibility of what they have to share. Yeah, and, and what did you think, Mike? Um, uh, you know, the, the contrast, again, with the president, uh, while uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch was testifying, he tweets some disparaging comments about her, and, sh- and she gets asked about them in real time and, yeah. and performed extraordinarily, I thought. Yeah. Right, right. And, and you know, and it's interesting because she's not sitting there looking at, at, at Twitter while right. she's <laughs> talking and answering the questions of members of Congress. Uh, but I think it is a, a it, it really sets the tone. I mean, the president... Um, by doing so, I think under uh, undercuts his own argument, mm-hmm. and it makes him seem like he's fearful. 
it makes him seem as though the only way that he can strike back is not with evidence, but disparaging right. uh, the people who are there to testify. Uh, now, the other interesting thing, we talk about you know, communications, and oftentimes communications in the business form right. um, gets informed by what we see in the political form. And uh, we had some news this past week relative to uh, FedEx. Um, and FedEx, I've got to say, you know, truth in packaging here, uh, was a Burson Marsteller client while I great was company. at Burson Marsteller. Great company. Uh, but news came out that they had not paid taxes. And as a consequence, uh, Fred Smith and the team at FedEx uh, seemed as though that they needed to have something to say. And one of the things that they shared was that it was kind of like a throwdown. Totally. You know, you know it's kind of saying, okay, I'm willing to go with my tax attorney and have a debate on this uh, with the news media. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious. I mean, you were oh, at GE yeah. when GE was in the crucible uh, and people were looking at GE for not having paid taxes. Yeah. How could they have learned from your experience? Whoa. I'm going to have to lay on the floor here and cry <laughs> when I do this. But look, it's a great company, and the stories are very similar. You know, Fred Smith, the CEO and founder of, of FedEx, was out front on the tax cuts, uh -huh. and they went from paying about a billion and a half dollars a year to zero in 2018. And the question is, did that go into CapEx, you know, spending yeah. to benefit workers and, and invest in the future and create jobs and such? According to the Times, no. Then Fred comes out um, with a statement yesterday on, on uh, the day the story ran saying it, the Times published a distorted and factually incorrect story on the front page, et cetera, et cetera. He points out that the Times itself didn't pay taxes in 2018. <laughs> and then he says, I hereby challenge A.G. Sulzberger, publisher of the New York Times and, and the business section editor, to a public debate in Washington with me and the FedEx corporate vice president of tax. A duel. Duel. You know, it's right. It's, you know, Aaron Burr and, and, and him. So, so look, uh, uh, my experience, you know, I'm the worst person to talk about tax um, PR strategy. To me, this is maybe some snorting and foot stomping, right? Yeah. You know, and, and again, I greatly respect that company. I, I do think it'll turn out to be an ineffective diversion because whatever the Times paid in taxes yeah. has nothing to do with what's Absolutely. in this story. And and when you come out with a statement like that, you've got to be very specific about what's wrong with the story. Right. Um, and uh, what is fundamentally, how is it fundamentally flawed? Keep it simple. Right. To your, to your point. But reacting with emotion is, I can tell you, is not effective. Right. And foot stomping. Um, so I'll, I'll be glad to see, um, you know, happy to see where it goes from here because I, I always learn from these. And ultimately, the corporate, uh, the U.S. tax code is immensely complex. Right. Immensely right. complex. And what FedEx is doing is exactly what Congress and the president wanted them to do, right. which is redeploy their assets um, to somewhere other than the federal treasury. Exactly what they did with that money, that's the story that FedEx should be telling.
Right, right. And, and indeed, I, I, I think the point that you just brought up is something that they should have said themselves. Exactly. Uh, they, they should have talked about what got them to where they are. Yes. And they shouldn't have excuses for it. They should just say, we did what was lawfully uh, enabled. Right. And, and, and kind of end it there. Right. Uh, but I think what they've done by sort of throwing down the gauntlet is they've made a bigger story out of this yes. than they probably should have yeah. and getting emotions in there and tugging at uh, the skirt of the New York Times doesn't help that either. That doesn't help, exactly. Uh, so another story that is, is interesting to me, I call it a princely sum, um, it deals with the Duke of York, Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew had an interview, some might call it a PR train wreck, uh, with BBC uh, Newsnight's uh, Emily uh, Maitlis. In it, he said that he still did not regret mm. his friendship with convicted sex offender and financier Jeffrey Epstein. There were no apologies. He showed no empathy for either victims nor his accuser, though he did say that it was impossible for him to sweat <laughs> as a rebuff to the woman who claims that she had sex with him at uh, the house of Epstein associate, uh, was it Ghislaine? Um, Maxwell, Maxwell, yes. Uh, and is reported to have said, that is, his accuser is reportedly saying that he was profusely sweating, which is why he made the comments. Yes, yeah. And it seems the prince got an overdose of adrenaline after the Falklands yeah. War, which, by the way, was 1982. Right. Uh, that somehow prevented him from sweating when he might have been introduced to his accuser in 2001. 2001. So, Gary, given his performance in this interview, should the prince be sweaty now? Yeah, well, I would say uh, he ought to, you know, you know, wrap himself in a towel or something. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. And look, these things are incredibly difficult. Uh, uh, the interviewer here, Emily Maitlis, did a masterful job sort of mm -hmm. approaching it mm -hmm. from a, a strategic standpoint and um, really asked some difficult questions. He was completely unprepared. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, it's hard to take a look at things from the outside and know what was going on on the inside. But whomever was counseling him should have seen he was completely just unqualified to do this. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. He may have wanted to do it, but his personal characteristics and his unwillingness to be empathetic. Mm -hmm. um, at least, and his... It didn't sound like he had a strategy going into correct. this. It's, it's more like he, he's hearing from the BBC, he's hearing from lots of others. They go ahead, they maybe say, well, this reporter would probably yeah. be okay. Let's just do the one They brought him reporter. into the castle or whatever. I yeah, don't which know. is unusual. Right, exactly. You know, to, so, so they, they, they bring them into, I guess, private quarters yep. um, that on one hand, you might say, well, that's trying to be a little bit transparent, which is might yeah. be what they were thinking, but it also might have been, if you think from a reporter standpoint, maybe it was, uh, you know, trying to put the reporter in an uncomfortable position by sort of in those quarters, kind of, you know, putting the imprint that I am the prince. Exactly. And um, I don't know. I, I it, it clearly was not well thought yeah, out. Yeah, it's a it's a tape that you can use in your classes on how not to. And, Absolutely. And so, so anyway, he should be sweating. Remember Patrick Ewing? Patrick Ewing was a great New York Nick. Yeah. I mean, that guy would sweat. Like, he was drenched. Drenched. That's how the prince. I actually have one of his jerseys. Right? <laughs> I think it's still sweating. Yeah. So, all right, Mike, let's, last one. What's up with the Democrats? <laughs> all right, so um, we've got a wounded president. 
people are beginning to doubt that there's a candidate among the many now um, to unite the party and win next November. Two moderates jumped in, Mike Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. Bloomberg walked back his stop and frisk, famous, the centerpiece. Getting ready. Yeah, you know, and, and sort of to moderate. Um, moderate to conservative Democrats won gubernatorial races in Kentucky and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, uh, shout out to my wife, is uh, who loves him, is uh, out to a robust lead, and he's more of a moderate candidate in some Iowa polls. And then finally, this is the big one, oh, President Obama urged moderation to his fellow Democrats, and he, people don't want a revolution. They want people who can get something done. What's the, is this a warning to the left, you know, to the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, or what's going on here? Clearly, there is a mid, and I yeah. under, underscore mid, like yeah, yeah. middle. Right. Um, of course, correction. I think on yes. all, all on all parties here, on all uh, elements of the Democratic Party here, uh, I think there are a couple of things operating all at once. Uh, one, clearly, uh, you've had uh, Elizabeth Warren gaining steam in yes. a lot of early states uh, and in national polls, and then on top of that, what you've also had, you've had had, had Mayor Pete catching on yes. in Iowa. And uh, and a lot of this also sits squarely, I think, with Biden and his campaign in the sense that, you know, I don't know that Deval Patrick, I don't know that uh, Mike Bloomberg, either one of them would be getting in if it looked like Biden had a firm grip on on kind of the the middle left of, of, of the party. Right. And then the. Uh, flip side of that is that I do think that there's also some concern from a policy position standpoint uh, from those who might support a Patrick or mm-hmm. might support a Bloomberg as to what they don't want to see in the policies of, of, of you know, Warren and um, Sanders. Warren and Sanders. Yeah. So, so I think it's a great confluence of things. Um, and we'll see, you know, the election's getting yeah. closer and, and closer. And it's always amazing in these campaigns from a communication standpoint, just going back to the managers and the communications leaders, how fluid you have to be over a very long period. I mean, these oh, yeah. things are have become these great long marches to the sea, right? I mean, yeah. and you can't just stick with one thing, right? In, right. in, in other words, the, the things change, events happen, the populace gets to see a, a more clear picture of your candidate and the specifics, and you have to be so subtle in just sort of tweaking it to, but this is, of course, correction for the Democrats, yeah. clearly. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, listen, that's the news. Now we're going to go to uh, talk to our kids. I look forward to it. That's it's going to be great. Today is a special day on the Crux. Not only is this our 25th show, but it also is family day on the Crux. Mm. Our guests are very well known to Gary and I. Uh, my son, Will Fernandez, and Gary's daughter, Sarah Sheffer, uh, are our guests. So in addition to being your host today, we're also very proud dads. Mm, absolutely. And uh, both Will and Sarah are working in the world of communications, and we want to talk with them about that and get a sense of where these two accomplished young millennials see 
the future of communications. Uh, they have taken slightly different paths, but like many millennials and Gen Zs, they are keen to follow their passions, solve problems, and make the world a better place. Their stories are emblematic about how young people in communications uh, today, young professionals that is, think about their careers uh, and the people and world around them. Sarah is the Senior Communications Officer at Refugees International in Washington, D.C., which is an organization that advocates for uh, life-saving assistance and protection for displaced people and promotes sol solutions to help refugees around the world. She also worked at Burson Marsteller prior to that. And then Will Fernandez is, WP is in WPP's Fellows Program. After working for the Peace Corps in Costa Rica, he worked as a research analyst for PSB Research, which is a WPP firm. Mm -hmm. It's a polling firm. Very good. And yeah. uh, then worked for Ogilvy's Behavioral Science Unit in London, and now works for Ewan Sturgeon, Wonderman Thompson's CEO for Europe and South Africa, where he's also working in London. Welcome, Sarah, and welcome, Will. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's great to have you. So let's start with your backgrounds. I got into a little bit of it, uh, but Sarah, please uh, share with our listeners uh, where you went to school, your first job, and, and a bit about what you're doing today. So I graduated from Northeastern University in 2011, and my first job, um, much uh, to my dad's uh, <laughs> nervous chagrin, I'm sure, <laughs> was in Egypt. Um, at the time, Egypt was going through uh, political upheaval, and I ended up getting a job with Reuters doing video news production. So I was sitting on their wires, um, wire stories would come in, video footage would come in, and I would put it into video packages for their web and broadcast clients. So I learned a lot about writing, about the news, um, about how to prioritize stories and um, get things out there in a meaningful way. And I had some uh, very serious editors in London who made sure to sharpen my <laughs> writing. Um, so it was a really great experience. And so since then, I've, I've pivoted from journalism. I'm working in communications. Um, as, as you said, I work for an advocacy organization here in D.C. And essentially what we're doing is, you know, taking big policy ideas and trying to communicate them to people who can affect change, the public, so we can educate them about our issues um, and get the message out there about our work and our mission. Great. Will. Tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Uh, awesome. So I graduated from University of Chicago in 2015. Um, for everyone who's listening, uh, yes, it is one of the nerdiest places on earth. Uh, <laughs> from there, ended up uh, trying to figure out what of all the different interests that I had uh, I wanted to follow through with uh, and kind of take as that first step into a job. And for me, it might have been uh, kind of the over-idealistic millennial. But uh, for me, when I actually had a conversation with a, a few folks who had done their time in the Peace Corps, it really resonated with me. For two and a half years, uh, I worked in uh, Cartago, which is a small city to the east of San Jose in Costa Rica. Uh, so not the worst placement to be in. Um, but for me, it was an amazing opportunity to work with uh, small community working with a high school and an elementary school and the surrounding community to make um, better projects and services for uh, the youth that I was working with. And it was really eye-opening experience, but from there, all good things must come to an end. I had to figure out what I wanted to do next, but one of the big things that came out of this experience 
is an understanding of the power that communications has a con- as a convener force, mm-hmm. um, bringing together communities and organizations to make change. And so for me, I wanted to really dive a little bit deeper uh, into what that all meant uh, when it comes to larger organizations that are trying to make change. Seeing communication as a real convener for change, and uh, what I wanted to do after that is really figure out how do all of the best communicators in the world really um, hone their insight, craft their message, and deliver it to the people who need to hear it. So from there was a mixture of political polling to uh, a year of crazy insights that the behavioral science team over at Ogilvy, and then finally moving over to my current role at Wonderman Thompson, trying to redefine what the future of agencies looks like um, for not only ourselves, but for our clients most importantly. Terrific. Thank well, this is Gary Sheffert. It's great to meet you. I know your, your dad yeah, is... Yeah, great to meet you, too. Yeah, very proud of you. He, he, uh, he uh, uh, has filled us in. I feel like I know you, even though we're meeting... Um, uh, over the lines of a podcast. So I think what you just said is really uh, interesting. And and um, your career from the Peace Corps forward to working for an agency and what, what their future looks like. And uh, Mike mentioned your dad about the, the sense of purposefulness that a lot of uh, millennials feel. So how do, how do you take your experience in the Peace Corps and, and that avocation that you um, felt after the University of Chicago, how do you apply that in your workplace today? Uh, well, I think everyone, when they go into work, is trying to figure out how they can solve the problem, uh, not only for their immediate partners, but for the consumers at the end. And honestly, more and more consumers are asking for people to be more thoughtful uh, when it comes to the products they're creating or consuming or using as services. And so for me, it's just continually trying to be the advocate in the room for the consumer at the end. Um, For me, I would only want to buy and use products that I, you know, connected with um, organically. And so from there, I'd want to do the same for whatever I'm working on. And and Wild, how far along that spectrum do you think the, the companies that you work for are? In other words, um, we're hearing so much about purpose these mm-hmm. days. I mean, PR yeah. Week, we had Steve Barrett on here, the editor. They have purpose awards already. Mm-hmm. You know, how far along mm-hmm. would you say, obviously without um, uh, naming any folks, but um, is it, you know, they know it's in their heart, but they don't know how to execute it at this point? <laughs> no, I, I think a lot of organizations are getting it, uh, and they understand the business value that comes from being more inclusive and um, understanding of customers uh, and all the different communities that are a part of their customer group. Yeah. But I think it's difficult uh, to really uh, embody the whole development, designing, and co-creation with these consumers because at the end of the day, it's not authentic if they don't feel like they're a part of that process um, or at least that it aligns with um, the values that they would bring to working there themselves. So for me, you know, as an agency partner, trying to help brands better connect uh, with those consumer groups, and especially for consumer groups who haven't been traditionally heard before. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Will, just just real quick, are are there companies that you see? that are doing this well? Because my guess is, is there are a lot of companies to the point you're making now that are kind of chasing the trend, 
uh, but maybe not connecting with audiences. They're going out there and they're doing something that they call cause-related marketing, or they're going out there and doing something that they're saying is purposeful. Um, but I guess what I'd like yeah. to get a sense from you is who is really connecting the dots? I mean, it's a really good question. There are some classic case studies that would come up. So if you're talking about Unilever being one of the most obvious in terms of the work that they've done on real beauty for Dove, uh, on the work that they're now pushing with the rest of their portfolio with Alan Jope uh, as the new CEO. Um, but one that's you know kind of close to my heart right now in terms of being over at Wonderman Thompson is actually some work that Tommy Hilfiger is doing out of the States. So over this past year, we worked with them to develop and co-create an entire line of adaptive clothing for people with disabilities. Huh. And it was building out, you know, 15 different clothing innovations. Uh, you know, what we're doing with Tommy Hilfiger is all about creating new products that serve a customer need that hasn't been met before. And so we're looking at 22 different clothing innovations from magnetic buttons to one-handed zippers that help that individual not only feel comfortable in their own skin and in their own clothes, uh, but on top of that, answer a true need that the marketplace hasn't been answering. Uh, and it's you know lovely to know that you're creating a new product and it's selling well. But when you hear from a mom that this is a pair of life-changing jeans, that's something that's pretty incredible. That's a, that's amazing. That is amazing. So Sarah, you graduated. You mentioned Northeastern before, and and uh, you ultimately were an international relations graduate, but you started as an English literature major, like your dad, and then became a journalist, like your dad, <laughs> and then got into communications, like your dad. And are you? Are there any plans on becoming a professor, like at Boston University, or like Sarah, or? <laughs> Or, well, anyway. Not yet, but it's it's nice to have a, a crystal ball to see my future. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, good uh, shoes to fill. Yeah. So uh, I know I know you had some experiences uh, at Northeastern through their um, uh, co-op programs that opened your eyes to the purpose-driven organization that you work for today. Can you can you tell us about that? So um, you know, a huge plug for Northeastern and their co-op program. Um, they have an amazing focus on experiential learning, which I think worked really well for me. So you spend six months in the classroom, and then you spend six months working a job in um, the field that you're um, pursuing study in. And um, there's, a, there's a really big focus on that hands-on learning. Um, I was able to travel the world through Northeastern. I was able to go um, to China, to Syria, to Cuba, to Egypt. Um, and just learn from um, you know different voices, people with different experiences than my own, and um, really you know through that experience, I think that's informed a lot of the way that I've approached communications. Um, you know, first of all, I wanted to participate in the world and um, be a part of that world that I was seeing, but um, just seeing how meeting people, talking to people, um, hearing their stories can be so transformative. I think that's informed my work a lot, um, first through journalism and after communications as a real vehicle of change um, in a real um, way to, in, in what I'm doing now, trying to get the message out there to people, trying to, you know, shape hearts and minds, um, to have people be more more sympathetic to the experience of displacement. Yeah. You both used the word change. You yeah. know, isn't that amazing? Yeah. I, yeah. And I don't think, mm -hmm. Mike, I was 
thinking about that when I was <laughs> young. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah. I thought about the changes I had to make, <laughs> right to myself, yeah, to, be a, yeah. to be a contributor. Yeah. But I certainly wasn't thinking about changing the world, I don't think. So, so I do think some of that's cultural. Some of that's yeah. associated with the, the generations. Right. And, um, and in all transparency to uh, our audience, I mean, I actually worked with Sarah. Sarah worked yeah, with me when exactly. I was the U.S. CEO for Burson Marsteller. Uh, but Sarah, you know, what I'm really interested in, because what you have to do is not easy. Um, you know, I, I'm familiar with R Refugees International. Uh, they're lucky to have you. Uh, but I want to dig into some of that work uh, because work on refugee issues, uh, given the current political environment in Washington, cannot be easy. Um, so how do you try to build awareness on, on those issues? Sure. So you're exactly right, uh, Mike. You know, it's it's hard, first of all, to break through the news um, and the noise in our 24-hour our media cycle right now. Um, it's hard to get the ear of policymakers and an administration that's unsympathetic to our issues. Um, and one of our hallmarks of our work here at Refugees International is that we focus on underreported crises. So we make the, the work a little bit um, more difficult for us in that uh, <laughs> as well. Um, but, you know, there, there are concrete things that we do as communicators to try and um, make progress. And so I think, uh, you know, I have three ideas, um, and this is sort of from easiest to hardest how we approach this. Um, so first is that we're just consistently raising the alarm um, as our issues are sort of chipped away at, mm -hmm. as the public discourse gets more and more hostile toward the issues of um, refugees, displacement, migration. We just try to continue to be that watchdog and raise the alarm and, you know, call it out, um, explain what the, the precedent is in, in history and in international law, and um, try to uh, make progress that way. Um, the second is just to, to find common ground. Um, it's not impossible to find common ground with um, people across the aisle on these issues um, with the administration. You know, if we if we talk about issues of, of human trafficking, there are people within the administration who are sympathetic to that. Um, if we want to have a conversation about people who, uh, a treatment of, of refugees and migrants in countries closer to their home mm -hmm. or to their place of origin, we can make some progress there. So we have to be very deliberate um, about our audience and, and how we can find those commonalities and, and try to make progress where we can. Um, and the, the third is, you know, trying to just reshape the debate. I think for a long time we have talked about issues of forced displacement and migration, especially in the context of Syria and the Mediterranean crisis, um, as a crisis. And um, people are, you can't scare or shame someone into caring about this. Right. Um, right. You, yes. you really need to share stories of individuals, um, show how these people take, you know, these, these awful conditions that they've been um, put through and, and persevere, the, the mm -hmm. courage, the um, capacity to be creative under these circumstances and, and raise those voices. And, uh, you know, another thing we try to do as communicators is to highlight the success stories of people in host communities who are... Yeah. Um, hosting large um, refugee populations who are doing incredible things so that we can show people that, you know, just like this person in a host community here, you 
have the capacity to, to take in someone into your community and it can be a really positive thing. So I think getting away from some of that crisis narrative has been really important to, um, you know, calming things down, Inter- getting people on board yeah. and um, getting some buy-in on our issues. So yeah. we're, we're being very deliberate and, uh, you know, just trying to make progress where we can. Yeah, you mentioned Syria and clearly... Uh, the area in Turkey near the Syrian border has been in the news a lot lately. Um, and I'm, I'm sitting here next to your very nervous <laughs> father, uh, who tells me you recently went on a trip there um, with Refugees International. What was the purpose of the trip? Uh, what did you learn? And, and, and perhaps even share with us some, some impressions on the ground. So um, I was there this past summer. Um, we were on the Turkish border with Syria, um, and we were talking to people who were affected sort of by the, the, it's one of the final frontiers of the Syrian war in Idlib province. Um, It's still opposition controlled, and the um, Syrian army and the Russian army um, as its ally has been um, conducting a, a bombing campaign to try to retake the territory. So this summer, things really heated up. Um, half a million people were displaced from their homes. Wow. These are people who have been displaced maybe five or six times over the course of the war. Um, and they're all sort of um, huddled there in, in that corner of, of uh, northwest Syria in Idlib province. We were talking to people who were, um, you know, kind of going across the border from Turkey where aid is staged. Um, there are activists who can go in and out, doctors who can go in and out. Um, we could not go in and out because the situation was um, was too um, violent. But we wanted to get a sense of what was happening, what people needed, what they were experiencing, so that we could take their voices and, and advocate on their behalf here in Washington, um, and you know see what they needed and, and um, what the proper response should be from the international community. So it was really interesting um, from a communications perspective. My focus and um, you know, this is, as I said, a through line of, of the way that I've approached communications was um, to gather stories from people who um, were, you know, experiencing this conflict so that we can share them. Because it's just such a powerful way of, of, you know, you can say that half a million people were displaced, but um, to really take that single character That's narrative right, yeah. and, and tell someone about it is, is just so transporting. Um, and really transformative. So I was blown away by some of the people we met um, who, you know, whose homes were destroyed, whose brothers were killed in the war, um, and were still, um, you know, working as activists, as doctors, people who were dentists in Syria who then had to take the medical knowledge they had to perform surgeries under the bombardment, um, you know, spinal Mm -hmm. and um, brain surgeries, you know, even to, to wow. try to save lives. So just, you know, amazing, amazing courage. And um, that's what I've wanted to, to take from that experience and then communicate here in Washington yeah. to the right people. Terrific. Well, speaking of nervous, and all of that just made me, you know, I'm breaking out in hives again, Sarah. <laughs> so proud of you, but your mom and I, you know, we just sort of waited, looked at our phones and waited for you to call when you were there. But Oh, absolutely. Uh, but uh, I want to ask Will, uh, I, I know your father, you were at Nudge Stock this year. Which I was. Is, uh, which is a great conference. I, I hope some someday I'll be able to go to it as a part of your work with Ogilvy. And, and by the way, it must be great to have your father in the audience, Will, for a conference <laughs> that you helped put together, you know. My, it's like having your dad yeah, at your baseball game. pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> See? Your dad at your uh, baseball game, you know. So, anyway. That was yeah, worse. No, it's, more like, it's more like 
Yeah, it's more like having him at basketball and saying to guard the right guy or move a little bit faster <laughs> up the court. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I got a few tips for you, Will. But anyway, um, so exactly. Nudgestock focuses on behavioral science, um, which I know was developed by a Nobel Prize-winning economist at your alma mater. Tell us about um, Nudgestock and behavioral science and, and what what's the message on how communicators can learn from it and use it? Nudge stock, uh, for those who don't know, is an annual conference that's put on by Ogilvy, and specifically Ogilvy's behavioral science practice, uh, the team that I worked with uh, all of last year. It's an incredibly fun uh, conference, very much in uh, the atmosphere of it, once again, not being a conference, being a festival of ideas. <laughs> um, and from there, the whole thing is trying to bring three different distinct audiences. So one audience is obviously the academic, the people who are in this every day, trying to figure out what really makes us tick as human beings and what are the ways that we are consistently uh, coming up wrong. After the academic audience, you then have the practitioners. So who are the organizations, the startups, the major companies who are applying different insights, heuristics, different sets of biases, directly into their communication. So for us this past year, we had representatives from both Spotify and Uber talking about how they make better services by understanding the way your brain ticks instead of understanding, <laughs> you know, what's the new data point. Exactly. Um, and, then, and then finally, it's also going super lateral and trying to figure out how can you learn from the rock stars, the artists, the true creatives. So. For that third audience, we're looking at the creatives, people who have an innate understanding of how people will respond to their communication and introduce them to these practitioners and these academics to really bring practice and theory together um, and show what really makes us tick and how we can all learn from one another. And, so and in terms of in terms of the work overall in behavioral science, it's continually just trying to understand the real why behind the decisions that we make and not just the rationalizations that we can give after the fact to exactly. you know, whether it's a survey or a market researcher. Will, since midsummer, you've been working for one of the world's largest advertising agencies, Wonderman Thompson. You know, Wonderman has a sterling record for lots of its digital work. Uh, and uh, I'm curious, given what we, we've talked about on this podcast, the PR Week Boston University Bellwether study about there's some slowness in um, in our profession in, in adopting cutting edge technologies. And so do you have data scientists at Wonderman? And are you seeing new things, new technologies to being deployed to the benefit of clients? So at Wonderman Thompson, the three pillars that we bring together is creativity, data, and technology. So exactly to your question, we're trying to figure out how can we partner with our clients to create some of the most engaging and technologically advanced communication in the world. Um, and, and to do that, you need deep expertise. Uh, so we have around a thousand uh, data scientists and technologists wow. around the world who are working in partnership with our creative community uh, to really push the limits of what we can do for clients. Now, Will, you, you shared with me something that you the team had done in using um, artificial intelligence 
uh, one in kind of a creative application, I think, that was associated with ING, and then in another instance, actually solving a problem uh, for the Mexican Department of Health and, and Human Services. Could you share those? AI is the ultimate buzzword right now, but <laughs> in terms of uh, you know applications that you can see, I think it falls into one of two categories. Uh, one is kind of typical brand building, really cool projects that everyone will be like, oh my God, this is amazing, blows my mind. So I have something on that, as my dad pointed out in ING. Uh, and then on the other side, it's the much more tactical, data-centric targeting that can actually both boost sales and also support communities. So I'll start with the fun one first. <laughs> so with ING, um, we did a piece of work uh, called The Next Rembrandt. So for all those art history nerds out there, uh, you'll obviously know that the Dutch master Rembrandt mm -hmm. has not been alive for the past four centuries. Um, so the idea that we're going to have a new piece from this artist seems a bit far-fetched. But what our team did with ING, because they are a huge advocate for Dutch culture and the arts, but they also want to be seen as a 21st century innovative bank, was try and figure out using uh, data to be our painter and technology as the brush, is create an entirely new work based off of uh, artificial intelligence. So we did 3D scans and facial recognition software across all of his previous work to assemble what were the right proportions, what were the brush strokes, what were the colors that Rembrandt would use. So we used a state-of-the-art 3D printer to do 13 detailed layers at the end, unveiling the new Rembrandt, the next Rembrandt, uh, last year in 2018. It's really incredible work and also gets in the center of this debate around technology and art and how it can come together to create something that the world's never seen. Talk, yeah. talk to the uh, Mexican Department of Health and Human Services with Theraflu. So this is actually a partnership between the Department of Health uh, in Mexico, as well as GSK. Um, and for us, it's constantly looking at the common flu, you know, the number one illness that people are going to be suffering when we're getting into flu season. In 2018, in Mexico City alone, it was 500 deaths from the common wow. flu. And so what GSK wanted to do is figure out how could we be more targeted with our information around Theraflu and give people the right message at the right time. And so with our partners at Google, we utilize machine learning techniques, looking over eight years of epidemiological data, health data, weather data, as well as social and search trend patterns to identify an algorithm that created a predictive model of when the flu was going to break out and where it was going to break out. By the time that it was able to be released publicly as a part of the campaign, as a part of its media plan, it had a 97% accuracy rate of identifying when the flu would break out. And obviously wow. this will help in terms of sales, but more importantly, it's helping in terms of getting the right product to the people when they need it most. Wow. That's terrific. One of the great traits of your generation, millennials, as well as the Gen Zs that we have in our classrooms here at Boston University, is that many of you want to make your mark on society. 
Uh, you're committed to finding roles and work with purpose. Uh, Sarah, is that what drew you to Refugees International? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I just find so much inspiration um, from the mission of the organization and to be able to marry that interest I have in, in communications and storytelling and understanding public perception, understanding the media, and um, working on that to uh, an end of, of social good um, is really what keeps me going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and then, Will, you kind of touched on it all already with the Tommy Hilfiger piece. But which is fascinating. By yeah. Way. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. It was super fascinating. I, I guess from a personal standpoint, how do you look at opportunities uh, when you're looking at prospective clients and whatnot to connect them? I mean, are there things that people either in agencies or in-house uh, should be cautious about when they're given kind of the remit to find a way to connect purpose with the work of, uh, of a company? Yeah, I think brands and agencies should be equally um, uh, cautious about when they're trying to interact with a group that they haven't had as much exposure to previously. We all want to be more um, purposeful in our engagements, not only because it's good for society, but it's also good for business. But if you're not doing that, in an inclusive manner, um, it can come off as a bit tokenistic or just a bit out of place. And so what we need to be doing uh, from ER to advertising to digital work is making sure that whatever audience we're working with, that we have a right to be speaking at that table and we are doing the legwork to be a part of that. And there's so many different ways that plays out. I'd like to ask each of you, since you know Mike and I are the past, <laughs> we're the past. Speak for yourself. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, um, but where do you where do you see uh, Sarah? I'll start with you. Where do you see communications going? And, you know, Will is, has has talked about some amazing projects, and, and you certainly with. Um, by the way, when Sarah talks about storytelling, uh -huh. she knows of which she speaks. Yeah. I think uh, she was on her third novel of the week just this week. You know, <laughs> she's just voracious, and and that wisdom that you get from sort of liberal arts yeah. and and humanities, I think is so important. But where do you see both of you? Where do you see this all going? You know, I see, um, having worked for Burson Marsteller, um, having learned from your career, um, nonprofit communications has a lot of work to do to catch up to um, where communications in the private sector is right now, that there's data sets available and consumer habits um, available to you that nonprofit communicators are just starting to understand how to tap into for our purposes. Um, and I see that as a as a pretty transformational space for Interesting. us. Interesting. Now, you know, there's technology that Tiffany uses. If you walk into a Tiffany store, that they can geotag you and and market their messages to you because they know that you're interested enough in their products that you actually went into the store. Um, so, how do we use that in the context of of policy communications? And I think, um, you know, in, in nonprofit communications as well, what we're really um, looking at as well is just an erosion of, of public trust mm -hmm. um, and how do we make sure that we're communicating things um, authentically, credibly, and making sure that um, we're, we're bringing people along with us. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a challenge for people um, in, in all sectors uh, and communicators mm -hmm. in all sectors. That's interesting you say um, that, Sarah, because we, 
we have a course in not-for-profit communications here at BU, which I think is fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, there, we have our unique challenges. Um, we have small budgets, and we, we operate quite differently um, than, than folks in the public sector, but um, it's, a, it's a very interesting niche, um, and I'm, I'm and really important. happy to be a part of it. Exactly. Yeah. Will? Where's the future of communication? You guys should be telling us this. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're ready to take over this podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're going to continually have this conversation about how we can make sure organizations are more connected and more direct towards consumers. I think personalization, no matter what it is, in whatever form it takes, is going to continually be the need because we want to have more direct and linked up conversations. Um, but that doesn't necessarily just mean the death of, uh, you know, advertising and everything that you're getting is personalized based off of your data point. It's also helping build brands within larger companies that speak exactly to an individual audience. And I think that's what you're seeing in a lot of acquisitions within CPG, seeing what uh, is happening within fashion. Yep. Uh, as you're seeing a lot of brands go in and purchase, you know, small startups or companies that are focused on a smaller segment. Larger companies are acquiring some of these smaller, faster-moving startups and innovators because they understand that their brands are speaking to an audience in a much more authentic manner. So you could be looking at you know products within Unilever, uh, once again, uh, where they're looking at more uh, organic opportunities, more vegan opportunities to build out their portfolio set, or you could be looking at high fashion. You could be looking at cosmetics. You could, um, for example, you know all of the work that LVMH has done to work with Rihanna on both her beauty and her fashion brands, because for her lines, they're focused on creating beauty for all, right. all shades, all colors, and all sizes. You two are so smart. I, I just like I, I'm just it's like where did it come from? It, I'm stunned sitting here listening to all this because it's so it, it really is brilliant but i have to ask you you know did when you were young did you have any idea what your your dad and i did for a living <laughs> i had the hardest time explaining Absolutely. it all <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah i remember being in school uh saying that oh my dad just talks for a living i guess that's kind of true <laughs> sarah how about you i vaguely knew that I vaguely knew press releases were involved, but I don't think I knew what that meant. <laughs> and a lot of time at the computer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let's take let's take the pulse of our, our young professionals here. Uh, each of you, tell me how you get your news, and what your favorite news source is, and what are your favorite podcasts besides ours. For me, I get a lot of news off of both LinkedIn and Twitter. So that's kind of my aggregators. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Snapchat. Uh, definitely not on TikTok. Um, <laughs> and then in terms of the places that I'd go to, I am subscribed to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Um, I'll listen to a ton of different podcasts from both of those publishers but then if i'm being honest with myself uh i'm a huge sports junkie uh <laughs> listen to a ton of stuff from both espn and from uh the bill simmons podcast network 
So basically, if you're, we're talking media, those are the places that I'm most usually on. Excellent. So I start my day with NPR. Um, the, the top of the hour, I get our local newscast here in D.C., and then the national newscast, which is just a great way to start the day, I'm usually on my way to work. And um, like Will, I, I use Twitter as an aggregator for my news throughout the day. It just seems to be the quickest way to um, consume news, get updates on the issues that matter to me. I'm making sure that I'm following the right people for my issues. Um, and then I really um, rely on news sources that send me digest um, newsletters. So the New York Times, Axios, that right. I can just do those quick reads and make sure that I'm read into the news of the day. I also get the New York Times um, delivered every Sunday to my house. So I'm a little bit old school in that way that I like just physically having it there. Um, when I have a little bit more time to sit down with it, um, the New York Times Magazine, I love um, being able to you know, long read form. some in-depth journalism in the long form on Sundays. Um, and for podcasts, um, you know, like Will said, the, the um, New York Times has fantastic podcasts. The New Yorker has a fantastic podcast. Um, but if I'm driving, um, I really like 99% Invisible. It's a podcast about... Um, design. It uses design as a lens to approach the world. And um, it's just a nice break from um, the news cycle um, to just think about the world a little bit differently and um, avoid uh, the politics of the day. Well, Will, you know, and Sarah, you, you, we asked you not to, but you were supposed to say the crux. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, you know, gee. I mean, it's self-evident. <laughs> exactly. It goes without saying. Well, well listen, I, I have to tell you, I feel so much better about the future and not only our profession, but the world after talking to these two Absolutely. really amazing young people. And I just want to thank you both for uh, being on the crux. And Mike and I are beaming here um, in the studio. So proud uh, of both of you. And, you know, we're, I can speak for Mike here and I can say as we approach Thanksgiving, we're both extremely thankful for you and uh, the work you do. So thanks for being on the crux. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Thanks, guys, so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.